You're listening to Renegade Endurance Radio, episode number 40. Welcome to Renegade Endurance Radio, where we talk all things health, wellness, training, and nutrition. I'm your host, Martha Rosenstein of therenegadenp.com. I'm a nurse practitioner, endurance athlete, and chronic fatigue survivor, and I help heal cranky athletes so they can get back to training, racing, and living their lives with endless energy. Remember that the materials and content within this podcast are intended as general information only and are not to be considered a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Welcome back to another episode of Renegade Endurance Radio. The topic I'm covering this week came at me from a couple of different directions. As I was sitting in my living room, sweating on what turned out to be one of the hottest weeks ever in Anchorage, my friend Jen was on Instagram talking about her GI issues during her recent race in the heat. She said she thought that the heat had made everything worse and she didn't do quite as well as she was hoping um, just because she didn't feel so great. So in Alaska, we're actually coming off the hottest and driest June on record. And on the 4th of July, we broke the all-time temperature record for Anchorage and a few other cities. We topped out at 90 degrees. And this broke the previous record of 85 degrees set in 1969. It's complete insanity around here. No one has air conditioning. The stores are all out of fans, sprinklers, kiddie pools, and even ice. And I'm really not making this up. There, people are even calling stores, finding out when their shipments of various things come in and all of this stuff is selling out within minutes of when it actually gets into the store. So it's kind of crazy around here right now. We're all hot and we're all cranky. And I know that I certainly don't really feel much like eating, so I can only imagine what heat is doing to my body. So heat, especially when you aren't used to it, causes stress on the body. So it makes complete sense that when you're already stressing your body out by racing or even training, doing so in abnormally warm conditions probably actually makes everything worse. And endurance athletes are no strangers to GI issues, but what makes them get worse in heat? I did some digging into the research about GI distress in athletes and specifically what happens in hot temperatures, and honestly, I couldn't find a whole lot. What I did find said that there definitely needs to be more research in this area. So this means that most of the evidence and recommendations in this area is anecdotal. And while the gold standard when it comes to studies are randomized control trials, I believe both as a healthcare practitioner and as an athlete that anecdotal evidence is incredibly valuable. I've said this before, but these studies draw conclusions based on averages, and I don't treat averages, I treat individuals. So if I come across something or someone who doesn't really follow the average of a study, am I just supposed to not treat them? Or am I supposed to tell them that they're making something up because they don't fit into this box that was determined by a study? No, absolutely not. So while I'm fully on board with randomized control trials being the gold standard, I also think that it is important to consider the anecdotal evidence, especially in a situation like this. And This is especially applicable because making recommendations to fix GI distress during training and specifically while under heat stress is not a situation where you'll have terrible side effects or be put in danger as a consequence of a suggestion that in this situation is based on anecdotal evidence. It's not as if people are being told to take this drug or that drug without understanding the side effects. 
as would be the case if we were using anecdotal evidence in making recommendations about drugs for certain diseases. So most of these recommendations are harmless, even if they don't work. This is also a situation where common sense is really important. And I say this because common sense is unfortunately not all that common. So if you're somebody who is prone to the negative consequences of training and racing in the heat, and you can't make those go away relatively easily, or at least calm them down a bit, then you need to exercise some common sense as far as whether or not you should continue to train at the same level or even race in the heat. It's not worth risking your long-term health for the short-term win. So be sure to know your limits and understand your danger signs. If you have diarrhea or are vomiting, you're much more prone to dehydration especially when it's hot out. So be extra careful in those situations before deciding to continue on with whatever you're doing because severe hydration is actually dangerous. So exertional heat stress causes a thermoregulatory strain, which actually injures the lining of your intestines and it reduces your ability to clear toxins, promotes the release of inflammatory cytokines, which are substances that cause inflammation, and it can trigger gastrointestinal symptoms. 30 to 50% of athletes experience GI complaints during training or racing, but there are large differences between different events and even between individuals within the same event. There's also a correlation between GI complaints and having a history of GI symptoms, so some people might just be more prone to these than others. Why does this happen? During intense exercise, especially if you are not well hydrated, the blood flow to your guts is reduced, which compromises um, the permeability of your gut. So basically, the blood flow to your lower GI tract is compromised. And in several studies, the, there was changes noted in the lining of the intestines that are known to occur during what's called ischemia, so reduced blood flow to the tissue. Um, these have been found in endurance athletes in multiple studies. During strenuous activity, norepinephrine is released, which binds to receptors in the sympathetic nervous system and causes vasoconstriction of the GI system. So that means that the, the blood vessels in your GI tract constrict. This results in an increase in total GI vascular resistance. It's harder to pump blood through those vessels. At the same time, the vascular resistance with activity is decreased in other tissues. So it's easy to get blood to other places and hard to get blood to your gut. During maximum effort during exercise, GI blood flow might be reduced up to 80% in order to provide sufficient blood flow to the skin and muscles. So blood is shunted from your guts to the active tissues, which can cause gut ischemia. So that's reduced blood flow to the guts and increased intestinal permeability, which is the fancy way of saying leaky gut, which we've talked about many times on this show. It's possible that this is actually the reason that people might get nauseous, they might vomit, have abdominal pain or diarrhea, even though there's not really an actual, uh, there's not a lot of solid evidence that actually links these two things together. According to several studies, exercising in the heat does not appear to affect gastric emptying until you get to well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. I think it was like 115 or 120 where they found this to be an issue. But exercising in an underhydrated state does affect your gastric emptying. Moderate exercise appears to have no effect on gastric emptying. So gastric emptying is how quickly your stomach empties its contents or processes the contents into your small intestines. So moderate exercise does not have any effect on gastric emptying, but high intensity and intermittent exercising does. So gastric volume, which is how much 
volume is in your stomach also affects gastric emptying. So consuming food and liquid together or a large amount of liquid might actually increase gastric emptying. So it makes your stomach empty more quickly. Exercise and hypoglycemia, so low blood sugar, also speeds gastric emptying time. And symptoms of increased gastric emptying are abdominal cramping, bloating, diarrhea, and dizziness. Exercise does not affect uh, water and carbohydrate absorption, but there's actually no data that I was able to find beyond two hours of exercise or with high intensity of exercise. So it's possible that if you are exercising at a very high intensity or for longer than two hours, that the your body's ability to absorb water and carbohydrate may be affected. Intestinal permeability is increased with fluid restriction. And this is because it ultimately impacts gut perfusion. So less fluid volume affects your overall blood volume. And if you have less overall blood volume, and more blood of that reduced blood volume is going to your skin and your muscles, the amount of blood that's going to your guts is even less if you're underhydrated. So there's research that shows that increased intestinal permeability happens in all endurance athletes immediately following long workouts or races. Again, unfortunately, there's no clear research that ties intestinal, increased intestinal permeability to GI distress during exercise, but as we've established already, that doesn't mean that there isn't a link. There's just no research that shows that, and it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen to people. There is research that shows that GI issues are more likely to occur with intake of concentrated carbohydrates and beverages that have high osmolalities, so an osmolality of above 500. Now, in case you don't remember your basic chemistry, osmolality is a measure of how much of a solute is dissolved in a substance, and the osmolality of a substance relative to another substance affects the directions that the particles within that substance and the water move. So as far as sports hydration and nutrition goes, the more particles a beverage contains, such as carbohydrates, amino acids, vitamins, all that kind of stuff, even flavoring, the higher the osmolality. And osmolality, again, affects the way that the solution is digested and used within the body. Optimal absorption of fluids within the body happens when your sports drink solution is equal in terms of uh, osmolality to what actually is natural in your body. So our own fluids tend to be around 280 to 300. And when you drink a fluid that has an osmolality over 300, which is called a hypertonic solution, this causes delays in gastric emptying, but will also cause fluid to shift from the body into the gut before you absorb anything. So this actually causes a delay. Um, it causes issue with the guts and delays rehydration, which can be a huge issue. Now, remember that um, GI distress is more likely to occur when you get over 500, but this issue starts to become a problem for your body at about 300. Solutions that have an osmolality of around 280 are considered to be isotonic. Those with a higher osmolality are called hypertonic, and those with a lower osmolality are called hypotonic. Optimal absorption of fluids happens when your sports drink is isotonic. And isotonic beverages can also assist in rapid gastric emptying, which actually helps to decrease that sloshing full feeling and the GI distress that often comes as a result of that. So this is not a cut and dry issue because 
if you're having um, gastric emptying that's too fast, you can have issues, but you can also have issues if it's too slow. So hard to tease that out. Um, also, as osmolality increases above 300, the efficiency with which your GI tract absorb it, absorbs it decreases and can cause gas and bloating and cramping. Solutions that are hypertonic, so that have high osmolalities, again, actually draw water or fluid out of the body and into your GI tract, which delays rehydration and can have a pretty serious effect on your performance. So for the everyday average person, this might, might not be an issue, um, but for an athlete, it could be a serious issue. So for reference, the osmolality of Gatorade and Powerade is almost 400. The osmolality of Coke is 493. The osmolality of apple juice is 736. Um, and actually all fruit juices are well over 500. And the osmolality of Red Bull is over 600. So there's an article that I found that shows um, the osmolalities of various sports drinks and other things that I'll post in the show notes. Um, but I thought that was pretty interesting because I do know that a lot of people drink Coke during a race. And if you're not used to that, that could actually be a huge problem for your guts. It's also worth noting that if you're using gels for nutrition during training and racing, you're essentially creating something with an osmolality over 1,000 in your gut. And I'll talk about this a little bit more when I discuss what to do to mitigate gut issues, but if you take a gel and then have a drink of Gatorade, you're basically creating a huge gut bomb and are just asking for trouble. You'll also be more prone to dehydration because your body will actually pull water out of the rest of your system in order to deal with what you've got in your gut. There are a lot of sports drinks out there that you can find that are isotonic or pretty close to iso isotonic, um, which is how you would get the best absorption and the least amount of GI distress. You do also need to be careful about the source of the carb in your sports drink and whatever nutrition you're using because there are certain kinds that can cause gut issues. And while it may not be an issue during your regular training, be aware that since heat promotes gut permeability, you might find that you have issues with certain sources of carbs or food when you get into a hot environment. So strenuous exercise promotes GI permeability, which causes leakage of something called lipopolysaccharide, and this has been shown to be exacerbated by heat stress. And this can actually be decreased with um, L-arginine supplementation, and I'll talk about that a little bit later too. So during exertional heat stress, so when you're exerting yourself hard during in, in a hot environment or an environment that is of a temperature that is higher than you're used to, GI permeability is exacerbated due to rising core temperatures and the preferential blood flow away from the gut, which actually can open those tight junctions between the lining, the cells that line your intestines and cause tissue damage. And it only needs a small rise in core temperature to induce this increased permeability. Anywhere from like 103 to 104 is where this starts to happen. And this is core temperature, and that was Fahrenheit, um, which can actually pretty easily be achieved during exercise. Ingestion of aspirin and ibuprofen are um, known to cause an increase in GI permeability, and actually aspirin more so than ibuprofen, even when your core temperature is relatively stable. And I've got a whole blog post about um, ibuprofen and NSAIDs, so I will link to that in the show notes too. GI permeability, as we kind of discussed, is further compromised when you restrict fluids um, because of the way that your blood flow is shunted away from your gastrointestinal tract. Leakage of lipopolysaccharide from the gut, again, is a known outcome of performing exercise during um, or under heat stress conditions. 
but there's also evidence that training and exposure to heat stress can actually create a protective mechanism against GI permeability to the point where this LPS, the lipopolysaccharide, doesn't compromise your performance. There's also an inflammatory cytokine called interleukin-6, which is released during exercise at a rate that is dependent on intensity and duration. So there's more intense and the longer your exercise is, the more of this is released. And release of IL-6 is exacerbated when exercise is performed in hot conditions. But environmental um, temperature is not the only thing that's responsible for release of this cytokine. Exercise-induced muscle damage, such as what you might sustain by running downhill for a period of time, can actually elevate IL-6, which then exacerbates this exercise-induced hyperthermia. And while this isn't tied directly to gut issues, it is an additive factor to the stress that your body is under when it's hot and you are exercising. So we've already touched on how heat stress mammals partition blood flow to the periphery. So how you take blood flow away from your gut and send it to your muscles and your skin. And this is to make sure that your muscles and your skin, which is your muscles are working hard during exercise and your skin is how you um, maximize heat dissipation. So we've kind of talked, we've touched on that. So vasoconstriction of the GI tract, which is those vessels in your, in your GI tract constrict and make it hard for blood to flow there. Cause, so this causes reduced blood flow and reduced nutrient flow and leads to hypoxia of the lining of the intestines, which compromises their function. Heat-induced intestinal permeability is associated with an increase in blood markers for um, toxins in your blood, hypoxia, which is, again, reduced oxygenation, um, different than reduced um, ischemia, which is reduced blood flow, I think. I'll have to double-check that. I always get those mixed up. Um, and inflammation. Now, I found a study that was specific to, was done on pigs, um, but I certainly think that it has application in humans as well, um, because mammals, in this case, all operate very similarly. So specifically in pigs, circulating endotoxin concentrations increased 200% in heat stress um, compared to normal temperatures. And then after 24 hours of an acute heat load, heat stressed pigs actually had increased blood glucose. Heat stress, again, as we talked about, shunts blood flow to the periphery, so out, away from your center to your extremities, to your skin, to your muscles, which decreases blood flow to your intestines, leads to hypoxia again. Uh, something that was interesting that wasn't mentioned in the other studies that I read, other than this one that um, talks about pigs, is this shunting of blood away from your guts actually can re um, result in depletion of ATP, which is what your cells use for energy and an increase in something called apoptosis, which is programmed cell death. So that was pretty interesting. ATP de depletion and osmotic stress, which is, um, we talked about osmolality. So osmotic stress is the same thing um, or similar. It's the uh, pressure and flow of water and particles across cell membranes. So this is further amplified by an increase in the ion pump activities of your um of your of your system so the there's an ion pump that pumps like sodium and potassium in and out of your cells and across your muscles and that's actually a significant source of energy expenditure so you're depleting atp which is what you use for energy and then you're making this ion pump work harder which is causing you to use more energy so not only does heat stress cause some gut issues but it and, and i think we all know this 
from exercising in the heat and feeling completely wiped out, but heat stress also depletes your energy more quickly than um, exercising under conditions that you are what will be called normal thermic, so temperatures where you are used to the temperature. So cells related to this ion pump um, in heat, under heat stress, cells are also more permeable to sodium and require more energy to maintain homeostasis. So the conclusion of this study was that exposure to heat stress, again, this was in pigs, but I do think that this is important and applicable to humans. So exposure to heat to acute heat stress decreases intestinal integrity. It increases endotoxins circulating. It adversely affects intestinal glucose transport, your digestive capacity, and your um, metabolism overall. So what do you do about all of this if you are somebody who has increased GI issues during hot training or racing? If you're planning on racing in, in an environment that is warmer than what you are used to, it's probably a good idea to at least partially become acclimatized to exerting yourself in the heat. If you can, go to a hot place and train, or you can turn your not-so-hot place into a hot place while you're training. So if that means training inside and using a heater or closing the windows or wearing more clothes, go ahead and do that. So every at the end of every March, I go to a race in Hawaii, and I'm coming from winter in Alaska to going to 80-plus degrees in Hawaii. So I do a little bit of this where I get on my bike in my basement and wear extra clothes. I don't do a very good job of it, but it's certainly, um, I'm not always outside where it's cold exercising in order to kind of acclimatize myself. I also will say that the more that you do this, the more that you go to warm places, especially if you're sensitive to heat, um, the more your body adapts every time you go back. So the first time you go to Hawaii and do a race and it's hot and you're from Minnesota where your winter has been minus 12 Fahrenheit all winter long, and you suddenly go to Hawaii to do this race, uh, it's going to feel pretty miserable. But if you do this year after year, by the second or the third or even the fourth year, you're going to feel a little bit better and not quite so stressed by the heat because your body adapts to it. And I need to find this article, but I was actually reading recently that heat training is more beneficial to your overall fitness than actually elevation training. So I thought that was pretty interesting. So you can also be sure to um, avoid NSAIDs, so that's aspirin and ibuprofen, at least 24 hours prior to hard exercise in the heat. I, again, I have a blog post where I talk about why you should avoid NSAIDs anyway, um, if you're an athlete, and I will link to that in the show notes. Avoid high fructose foods. Um, I didn't talk about this. One of the studies did mention um, that fructose is not well absorbed during exercise, and, but interestingly, a combination of fructose and glucose might be okay and better tolerated. So again, that's just being aware of the type of carbohydrate that's in your um, nutrition or your sports drink. Really important to hydrate. This is important in any situation where you're exerting yourself, but especially in the heat. You also want to avoid drinks with very high concentration of carbohydrates to prevent that high osmolality in the stomach. And Talking a little bit about that, you want to make sure to ingest your carbs with sufficient amounts of water to prevent those high osmolalities. So this goes back to what I was saying before about gels. If you use gels, you absolutely need to be drinking plain water with them. And that goes, the same goes for any sort of high carb food that you might eat during your race. This doesn't mean that you need to avoid sports drinks completely if you're using these for nutrition, um, but surrounding any sort of high carb food intake 
especially if you're somebody that is prone to GI issues. So surrounding any sort of high carb intake, like a gel, um, you might want to use something other than you might want to use plain water while you're once you take that in and then wait to use your sports drink just to make sure that you don't get that high osmolality in your stomach. So I use Infinite for my sports drink and mostly for most of my fuel. I do occasionally supplement with honey stinger waffles during longer efforts or when I feel like I need to. But after reading some of this information, I'm actually probably going to shift my uh, method a little bit and play around with it. I'm not somebody who's particularly prone to GI issues during training or racing, but um, I have noticed that it's an issue when it's hot outside. So, and it's not, it's nothing that I can't handle, but like, it's not a run to the bathroom situation, but I might shift how I do this a little bit just to see if it makes a difference. So I'll probably wait until I'm at an aid station or a place where I have access to plain water before I eat a waffle just to sort of minimize that risk. I'm more concerned about dehydration than GI upset. So I thought that was something that was interesting that I learned from this. And I might tweak my own, um, what I do a little bit from what I read here. So this is definitely something that I'll play around with. The other thing that can cause GI issues is an untrained gut. So just like you train your body um, by train, you know, going out for a training run or lifting weights or whatever, you need to train your gut. So you need to practice your nutrition. Athletes who are not used to fluid and fuel ingestion during exercise actually have double the risk of developing GI symptoms compared to athletes who are used to eating and drinking during exercise. And this goes for trying a variety of foods too. So you can actually train yourself to ingest real food versus something like a waffle or which I would consider more of a real food than a gel, but you can actually train yourself um, to ingest these foods during exercise. And this is really important, I think, for something. Anybody who is an ultra runner probably knows this better than, than most of the rest of people because you are not moving necessarily all that quickly and you need a lot of calories. So you have to figure out how to eat some solid food in the middle of your race. Um, if you have access to the what's provided at aid stations, if you don't want to carry your own fuel, make sure that you're training with that so that when you get to the aid station, you're not taking in a food that you're not used to, because that is also something that people don't think about. They're hungry. They show up at an aid station, they're hungry and they're thirsty and they'll take whatever is there. But if you're not used to eating or drinking what's there, it's going to cause an issue for you. And that issue is going to be worse if it's hot. Also consider um, supplementing with L-arginine if you're going to be training or racing in the heat. Uh, most of the information that I found about this is in other animals, so not humans. I found a study about mice and pigs and chickens, but I didn't find anything specifically to humans. But all of the studies that I read showed that the amount of bacterial translocation that occurs, which is basically that lipopolysaccharide leakage and is a sign of increased intestinal permeability. So all of that that occurs during exercise under heat stress is actually significantly reduced when you supplement with L-arginine. And as with any supplement, please be sure to talk to your healthcare provider before you start something new. Um, and just make sure that there's no reason why you shouldn't start it or that it's not gonna interact with anything else that you're taking. Also, one very important note is one of the potential side effects is diarrhea if you take this on an empty stomach. So if you decide to go this route, definitely experiment with it during training before you try it in a race. Remember, nothing new on race day. And dosage, it looks like, should be around 500 milligrams. And the studies all seem to agree that there are very few adverse effects when you take less than 20 grams per day. So 500 milligrams is significantly less than 20 grams 
So as long as you're not downing a whole bunch of it, chances of a side effect are pretty low. It appears that the reason why your GI issues get worse in heat isn't necessarily well understood by science. And I should mention that I did come across a few studies that summarize that I didn't summarize here that mentioned that heat actually increases the incidence of irritable bowel syndrome flares, which is also probably gives us some clues about why this happens in athletes, why you get GI distress in the heat as well. So I hope that all of this was useful. That is all I've got for now. You can find the show notes for this episode at therenegadenp.com slash four zero. If you aren't subscribed to my email newsletter yet, you can subscribe at therenegade.com slash newsletter. And not only will you then never miss out on any of the content that I create, but you'll also get a free guide to finding endless energy. You can also follow me on social media. I am on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, but I probably spend most of my time on Instagram. And of course, I love getting feedback and comments about the show. If you want to email me, that would be great. But it would also be really great if you could rate and review the podcast via your favorite podcast app if you haven't done so already, because any kind of review shows that people are listening and they care about the show. Obviously, I prefer good reviews, but if you hate the show, that's fine. I want to know about that too. So ratings and reviews really just help the visibility of the podcast and to help other people who are searching for this information find it. I'm your host, Martha Rosenstein. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.